Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free whilst lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. And we would like to thank our sponsor, Locum Story. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, Locum Tenens might be a solution for you. If you're considering Locum Tenens either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two or 20. Fortunately, Locum Story has the answers you need. It is packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians just like you. LocumStory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information where you'll find all kinds of super handy tools that let you see Locum's trends for your specialty. Be able to compare it with different Locum's agencies and there's even a quiz to help decide if Locum's is right for you. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual Locum's physicians who have firsthand Locum's experience. LocumStory.com is the perfect place to start if you want to learn more about Locum. So everyone, make sure to check out LocumStory.com. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt slash your taxes and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, today we are going to be talking about a subject that I haven't touched on in a long time, and that is malpractice insurance. I'm sure it's one of those things that many of us don't really think about on a day-to-day basis. We might hear about it from other people. And so that's why I am excited to have a guest on to ask lots of questions to those of us that need to be better educated on this subject. Please help me welcome Jennifer Wiggins of Aegis Malpractice Solutions. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, glad to have you on board. We were talking weather in, uh, in pre-chat, recording this in late June, and gosh, it's uh, been a weird year in so many ways, hasn't it, Jennifer? Absolutely. We've had some crazy weather the last few weeks in particular here in the Midwest. So glad we're on to a nice, calm, beautiful summer. That's right. That's right. Well, I always love to know from guests learning about where they are from, how they grew up. Jennifer, tell us a little about you and your background. Sure, sure. Let me just give you the Cliff Notes version of kind of how I I ended up doing what I'm doing, because sometimes people will say, how in the world did you pick malpractice insurance (laughs) for a career? Uh, and the answer to that is I didn't really. Um, I started off um, knowing that I wanted to be involved in healthcare in some capacity. I've always had an interest in healthcare. In fact, I thought I wanted to be an anesthesiologist. That was initially what um, I wanted to pursue when I went off to school. But when I realized how intense the uh, training is for that, I decided to pivot and I moved on to business administration. So got a degree in business and I thought, you know what? Pharmaceuticals sounds like a really cool line of work. So After I graduated from college, I put my resume out with about 20 different pharma companies and I did not get a single call back. Mm. So went back home to Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is my hometown and 
basically started twiddling my thumbs and thought, all right, I got to do something. So I started answering ads in the paper. And uh, one of the ads was a sales position and it made a decent hourly wage. And I thought, you know what, let's give it a try. Went into the first meeting, come to find out it was Cutco Knives. So I don't know if anybody uses Cutco Knives, by the way, they are excellent knives. Uh, <laughs> but basically it's a bunch of college kids who they hire to sell knives to all their friends friends and family. And that's what I did for the first couple of weeks with that particular company. But one of the people I sold knives to was a friend of my mom's. And after I gave the presentation, she bought some knives from me and she looked at me and said, you know, you probably shouldn't be selling knives. You're a little too good for this. And, uh, and she said, I think they're hiring at medical protective, which is the company where her husband worked. And she said, I think it's just like a call center position. It's an entry-level role. Would it be something you'd be interested in? And at that point in time, I was like, yes, I'll try anything. So that actually was my entree into the malpractice industry. So medical protective is one of the nation's largest malpractice carriers, and they are located right here in my hometown of Fort Wayne, Indiana. So I got hired at MedPro and I started off in the call center answering 1-800 number calls. And um, from there, I moved on to a customer service role, moved into a national sales role. And right before I resigned my position there, I was the regional sales leader for basically like the Midwest region. That basically meant that I was in charge of managing all of the doctors in kind of a five-state territory, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, the surrounding states. Um, so I was both a new business producer, so I was writing business, and then I was managing the business in those states. So I really, really loved what I did at MedPro, and I was very fascinated by the industry. In fact, I got a number of insurance designations just because I was so fascinated and wanted to learn more. But what I began to find out is, you know, here I was walking into a doctor's office and I was saying, hey, I'm Jennifer with MedPro. Would you like to buy this policy from Medical Protective? And I quickly found out that there were really two big gaps in the marketplace. The first gap that I discovered was doctors don't really know a lot about malpractice insurance. They know they need it. They know it's kind of that necessary evil in order to get credentialed and have privileges and be able to work and collect a paycheck. It's also what they need to cover their behind in case heaven forbid something happens. So they know they have to have it, but they don't really understand it. They don't really understand the different types of policies. Why would I pick one over another? So I really noticed that there was a lack of education as it relates to malpractice insurance as a topic. The second thing I noticed was there really wasn't anybody helping doctors objectively look at options in the marketplace. You know, here I was walking in selling insurance from one company, the company that I worked for. So I'm going to be a little biased towards that one company. Well, that doesn't really serve the doctor because the doctor doesn't know if that's the right one. They don't know that that company is the best company for them. So I realized what I really was passionate about kind of being that independent agent kind of broker person that could walk into a practice and say, Hey, here's all of your options with all of the top carriers. Here's what's different about each. Here's the price difference for each. Here's what makes one different than the next. And based on your practice setting, you might want to take a look at these, you know, two or three carriers. So all of that kind of uh, brewed and kind of created some interest in my desire to do something different. So after 16 years at MedPro, 
uh, I resigned and decided to start my own business. So in the fall of 2018, I launched Aegis Malpractice Solutions, and we are basically just a boutique insurance agency. So we do exactly those two things. We educate healthcare providers on all things malpractice, and then we serve as a broker. So our job is to get doctors quotes from every carrier in the market and then help them objectively compare their options and find the fit that's going to be the right one for them. Well, here's here's what's interesting, Jennifer, that I think a lot of people may not realize, many of us listening to this podcast. Now, for me, I, I don't do malpractice, but I've done plenty of term life insurance and disability income insurance policies and stuff like this. And what's interesting is this difference between captive agencies versus kind of general agencies. So for me personally, like I don't own an insurance agency. And so I've cleared stuff through Ash Brokerage. Ash Brokerage has relationships with a hundred different carriers. Although, you know, I've noticed sometimes some companies seem to have preferred relationships right. with, with Ash, um, headquartered in Indiana, actually. And so uh, I'm curious to know um, the captive agencies, many people in the physician space might be familiar with Northwestern Mutual or Guardian or those mm -hmm. kinds of companies. And they, all the Guardian people will show you as Guardian stuff, all the stuff yep. the Northwestern people will show you as North, Northwestern. How can, now I've described that in the life and disability, what is it like in the malpractice world in terms of how things are set up and captive versus agencies and products and stuff like that? Yeah, well, it's very similar. So you have some insurance carriers that write direct. So that's like what I was doing before. So if you want to buy insurance from, you know, say medical protective, you can just call medical protective and talk to one of their direct agents and they'll write you a policy. There are also captive agents. So to your point, there are basically agencies that are owned by a specific carrier. So, you know, the doctor's company owns a couple of agencies up in Michigan. And so those agencies can only write for the doctor's company. I happen to think, and maybe you agree, I don't think that that truly serves the doctor because how do they know? I mean, again, how do they know that that's the right one for them? Now, great. You're going to have a lot of knowledge on that one company, but sometimes, you know, that means you've got blinders on and you don't really know if based on your, that doctor's unique practice setting and what they want to accomplish in the future, your policy, your, your product may not be the right fit for them. So there is a lot of that in the malpractice space. There are only a few brokers that actually have access to all of the big carriers. The other thing that we see is there's a lot of general agencies. So there's a lot of agencies in the property and casualty space that will sell lots of different types of policies. For example, they'll do the business owner's policy. They'll do the general liability policy. They'll do other types of PNC types of products, and they'll also do malpractice. Now on face value, you might look at that and think, well, that'd be helpful. I'd only have one point of contact to do all of my insurance. But the problem is malpractice is so highly regulated and so highly nuanced. One state is completely different than the next state. And there are you know, significant um, advantages and disadvantages to different carriers and different markets. And so if you're not really in the weeds uh, you could be doing a tremendous disservice to a doctor by pretending like you understand the malpractice market when in fact, you're kind of a jack of all trades and you just know a little bit about everything. 
So we have found, you know, again, the way we structured our business was very intentional that we only are going to do medical malpractice and that is it. And we're going to work with all the carriers because we think that is the best way to offer the best solutions to the doctors that we work with. When you say all the carriers, like how many carriers are there out in the medical malpractice? So there's not a lot. Um, in fact, you know, there's probably you are aware of the, there's an admitted market and then there's a non-admitted market. So the admitted market carriers, which are the big, you know, financially stable, A-rated good players, there's really only about 10 to 20 nationwide that are highly respected and would be credible enough that I would recommend them. Some of them are only state-specific carriers. For example, TMLT is Texas Medical Liability Trust. They mainly only ride in Texas. Copic is a big insurance carrier. They really only ride in Colorado. Now, sometimes they'll do the surrounding areas, but you have some state-specific carriers, and then you also have, obviously, the national players. Now, there's really only like five carriers that can do malpractice insurance on a national level. So it makes it easier for us to have access to, quote-unquote, all the carriers because there aren't that many that are quite frankly, reputable enough that I would feel comfortable recommending them to a doctor that we work with. We also have the non-standard carriers, which would be the carriers that are not um, financially rated by the Department of Insurance in their given state. And so that would be for hard to place business. So doctors who have had a lot of claim activity, they've gotten non-renewed, or maybe they're doing some really high-risk procedure that they can't find coverage for. Um, we have solutions in the non-standard market as well. Yeah, sounds, sounds um, a smaller version of kind of life insurance. You know, you have someone gets table rated where you're higher risk. You have to go to like Lloyd's or something like that to get someone to cover it with exclusions. So very interesting. Yep. Um, now, I know that we have a lot of residents and fellows and those kinds of newly attending physicians that listen to this podcast. What do you think if you're a resident or fellow, what would you be asking your employer about your current malpractice coverage? Well, in terms of current, like the coverage you have as a resident, um, mm -hmm. you really don't have a lot to worry about in that regard. So most of the residency programs in the United States are self-insured, which means um, you don't have to buy your own malpractice insurance while you're in training there. The facility or the hospital is usually self-insured. So you normally don't have to worry about malpractice insurance until the time that you finish training and you're going to get ready to launch into private practice. So once that time comes, um, then it's really up to you to educate yourself on the different options. So what types of policies are there? And then obviously to equip yourself with the right questions to be asking, because if you're going to go into an employment arrangement, let's say you're going to go work for a hospital, chances are your malpractice insurance will be provided for you. So it is important that you kind of, you know, again, equip yourself with some general information so that you know enough that when you review your employment contract, you know what it means. If you're going to go solo, which we are seeing, quite frankly, a little bit of a trend um, into providers that are going, you know, back into individual private practice. So if you're going to go solo practice, or let's say you want to do 1099 work, you don't want to be an employee, but you want to kind of pop around and do some, some 1099 work, you'd need your own malpractice insurance for that too. So regardless of which of those avenues you're going to pursue, 
it is still important that you have some general knowledge of what types of policies are there, which one is the best fit for me? What are the pricing differences? Um, those types of things are really important for you to know going into those conversations. And that's why we do quite a bit of education for residents and fellows to give them what they need to walk into those conversations with confidence. Got it. So residents and fellows, from what I understood from you, generally don't need to be concerned with malpractice insurance at all. But once they're transitioning to practice, definitely should be asking a lot of questions. So let's say they're going to join a hospital system. What kind of questions would you be asking knowing what you know about malpractice? So some of the questions that we recommend that you ask are, there's about five or six of them that we think are, are pretty good um, topics to go into those conversations with. The first one is what type of policy is it? So it's important for you to know what kind of insurance are they giving you? Are they going to give you an occurrence policy or are they going to give you a claims made policy? Now, I don't know, Dave, if you want to go into the differences between the yeah. two policy types. Please, please. Okay. What are the, so, what's the difference? Yeah. So the difference between the two different types of malpractice insurance has to do with how the insurance triggers. So if you buy an occurrence-based malpractice policy, your coverage is going to trigger based upon when the incident actually occurred. So you only have to carry the malpractice insurance while you're actively practicing. So if you work for a group for five years and you have an occurrence policy, you just need to have the occurrence policy in place for the five years that you were working. After you're done, after you cancel and you walk away, you're finished. Nothing else needs to be done. Those occurrence policies will stay active and in force with the carrier that they were purchased from. So even if you have a claim filed for somebody you treated during those five years, and let's say the claim comes in two years later, you'll still have protection because the occurrence policy triggers based upon when the incident actually occurred, regardless of when the claim is filed. So an occurrence policy is a little more flexible. You really only need to carry it while you're working. And when you're done, you cancel it and you walk away. The other type of policy that you can purchase is called a claims made policy. And a claims made policy works the opposite way. So a claims made insurance policy triggers based upon when the claim is actually made against you. So when you buy a claims made policy, you really need to be thinking about it as in it's, it's a two in one policy. So you have to carry insurance while you're working, because just in case a claim is made while you're working, you would need to have protection. But then after you're done working and you cancel that policy, you have to secure a second type of insurance. And that is called tail insurance. Tail insurance starts at your cancellation date and it extends your protection into the future in case any claims are made against you down the road for the patients that you treated during the years and when you were previously working. Now, again, because it triggers based upon when the claim is made, if you don't have insurance that's active at the time that the claim is filed against you, then you don't have any protection. So claims made policies are two in one. You've got to carry it while you work and you've got to buy your tail at the end. So one of the things that we recommend that doctors ask when they have these discussions with their carrier or their, their potential employers is what kind of policy are you giving me? Is it an occurrence policy or is it a claims made policy? And if it's a claims made policy, the most important thing for you to ask is who is responsible for buying the tail insurance when you leave? Well, I think beyond asking, I always suggest show me. Yes. <laughs> so it's not just in words, which sometimes people talk off, off the top of their head. 
you know, show me where it is, is what I would add to that. Well, hundred percent. And when we always recommend uh, on all of these topics that we'll talk about, make sure you get it in writing because you never know the administrator that you're, you're hiring under, you know, if they leave and they've made you a verbal commitment that they'll cover your tail, but it's not in writing and somebody else takes over, you know, there's no one to say <laughs> it's all of a sudden your word against theirs. There's no commitment there. So make sure it's in writing exactly to your point, because it really will cover you down the road to ensure that you're going to get the protection that you need. And now let's take a moment for a quick commercial break. And we would like to thank our sponsor, Locum Story. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, Locum Tenants might be a solution for you. If you're considering Locum Tenants, either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two, or 20. Fortunately, Locum Story has the answers you need. It is packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians just like you. LocumStory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information where you'll find all kinds of super handy tools that let you see Locum's trends for your specialty. Be able to compare it with different Locum's agencies and there's even a quiz to help decide if Locum's is right for you. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual Locum's physicians who have firsthand Locum's experience. LocumStory.com is the perfect place to start if you want to learn more about Locum. So everyone, make sure to check out LocumStory.com. Well, I know that we have a lot of physicians that do Locum's 1099 work, maybe on the side, or maybe that's even their, their main thing. A lot of people get placed like through an agency of sorts. Some people might just negotiate directly with the hospital system or whatever that they're going to do the locums work for. What, uh, what should people be thinking about if they're locums? Yeah, so locums really can be handled one of two ways. Either number one, you work for an agency that already has a policy set up, and, and a lot of them do. So if you work for a locums agency and they have their own malpractice policy, Again, you would probably want to ask some of these same questions that you would be asking a potential employer. So what kind of policy is it? If I leave, who buys the tail? Um, I would also want you to ask, you know, details related to the scope of coverage. So when you do your locums work, are you only covered at the one facility that you're working for? Or are there any other leniencies where you could pick up some side gig work and have that policy cover you there as well? You also probably need to know if the policy gives you consent to settle. So one of the main things that doctors overlook with their malpractice insurance is the issue of consent to settle. And what that means is if you get involved in a malpractice claim and you haven't done anything wrong, you feel very strongly that you've met the standard of care and that there really was no wrongdoing. The insurance carrier is not allowed to settle that lawsuit without your direct written consent which is a huge thing for a doctor because you don't want somebody settling a lawsuit without your okay, because if that happens, then it gets reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank that you've had a loss against you. And obviously now, every time you go and get credentialed, every time you go apply for new malpractice insurance, you've got a report that you've had a paid claim on your history. 
So consent to settle is a really big deal. You need to make sure you have consent. And that just simply means that you get to call the shots as it relates to whether or not a carrier can settle a claim on your behalf. So I would want a locums provider to ask that question as well. So those are probably the three main things. I think the type of coverage, uh, tail insurance, um, are they allowed to work at other locations or are there limitations? And then the consent to settle issue is probably another big one for them to look at. That's good. I'm curious to know, I've dealt very rarely, but from time to time in long-term care insurance. And there are some agents out there that sell what I call a Cadillac policy, got Mm -hmm. all the bells and whistles on it. And when you look at it statistically, like most, like they'll sell someone a lifetime, you know, policy, which maybe in certain instances makes sense. Like, let's say someone has a history of Alzheimer's in their family, right? Like, Mm -hmm. okay, lifetime makes sense because you're more at risk for Alzheimer's. But if you're most people, most people only use long-term care policies for like two years. And so it's, it's really stripping it down to let people have some coverage, but not selling all this stuff that's unnecessary. So when it comes to malpractice, what are some of the bells and whistles that often get tried to get added to policies by agents to boost the premium and their income? You know, it really doesn't happen all that often with malpractice because there really aren't a lot of add-ons or bolt-ons that can be added to coverage. The only one or two that come to mind for me would be, for example, cyber liability insurance. So most malpractice insurance policies will come with a small amount of cyber liability coverage for free. Usually it's a minimal amount. It's like $50,000 worth of coverage per year. But if you would like to purchase more than that, you can. So if you want to buy, let's say a half a million or at, or a million dollars of cyber, obviously you could do that. That would be a potential add-on or bolt-on. Now, some practices may legitimately need that. I mean, if they're doing a lot of telemedicine, they're doing a lot of virtual care, it may make sense for them to bump up their cyber liability coverage. But that's maybe one thing that could be a bolt-on or an add-on. The other thing would be there's sometimes this protection that you can get added on as well for like medical um, billing fraud issues. So if your coding people make a mistake in the way that they code for the reimbursements and the government finds out, you can be charged a fee and you know pay a penalty for those mistakes. So you can also buy malpractice insurance or an additional type of coverage within your malpractice insurance to give you some protection for that as well. But those are really the only two kind of bolt-ons or add-ons that you can add to malpractice policies. Otherwise, they are all very, very similar in terms of how the coverage itself triggers and how it works. You know, there's other things like coverage for licensure issues. So if a doctor has their license called into question and they've got to appear in front of their board, that protection is, is usually automatically included. Sometimes there's also additional coverage for sexual misconduct. You get a small limit for sexual misconduct issues. But again, that's usually out of the box. And most of the carriers automatically include all of those. So it's not like something you can just add on to increase the premium. So it doesn't happen as much, I think, in this line of, of insurance. Very interesting. Yeah, because I know life insurance, for example, there's like 5 trillion writers, advisors can add on that add to the cost, you know, and in uh, most of the insurance I deal with, uh, disability insurance, same thing, all kinds of bells and whistles. It's, it's uh, interesting to know that malpractice isn't like that. Mm-hmm. So as we look at this, Jennifer, and we start to wrap up our, our 
podcast for today. Let's talk a little bit about what malpractice covers and what it doesn't cover. So like, clearly, you know, usually you think of that, at least I think of, you know, a surgeon, they left a scalpel or something, you know, in someone accidentally, you know, usually, and then they get sued afterwards because they left something in somebody that that'd be a typical malpractice lawsuit, at least I would think of, uh, and that I would think something like that would be covered, but can you walk us through what, what things get covered, what things don't get covered by a typical malpractice insurance policy? Yeah, for sure. So we can kind of back it up and talk about what is malpractice because that really helps better understand how the insurance works. So malpractice itself is defined as professional negligence by a healthcare provider that deviates from the accepted standard of care that results in harm to a patient. So that standard of care is really what we're looking to prove or disprove. So whenever a doctor gets sued, the plaintiff attorney is trying to show that the doctor did not meet the standard of care. Whereas the defense attorney is trying to show that the doctor did meet the standard of care. So what is the standard of care? Well, first of all, it's not perfection. Nobody is expecting a doctor to be perfect. Nobody's expecting them to you know, do a perfect surgery and make the right decisions every single time. But what they are looking for is they're saying, what's reasonable? What would a reasonably competent and skilled provider with the same background and training, what would they have done if they were in that same situation? Because as you know, you know, if a patient has a certain condition, there might be multiple ways you could treat it. So you've got to be able to show that you've done your due diligence in reviewing all of the options and recommending the course of treatment that you think is best. So in order to prove that the standard of care either was or wasn't met, they do that by bringing in expert witnesses. If it's a surgeon that has been sued, they will bring in another surgeon in a similar line of work to review the facts of the case to say, yes, it looked, you know, I would have done that as well. Or they may say, nope, I never would have done that. That was awful. So that's really the the standard of care measuring stick. Um, That's what we're looking at. Once you've determined if the standard of care has or hasn't met, been met, then you're talking about um, making payments to compensate the patient for their losses. So there's non-economic, uh, economic, which are compensatory types of damages, and then obviously there's punitive damages. So if they decide to make a payment on a case, whether it's a settlement that's made or if the doctor is found guilty and a payment is made to pay the patient, Economic damages would be like to pay for loss of income, to pay for their medical expenses, the cost of their future medical care, or there's also non-economic damages, which would be like pain and suffering. If you've permanently lost an organ or a limb, that usually has a dollar amount um, associated to it based on your age. Other things like that are considered to be compensatory damages that are generally paid and covered by your malpractice policy. There are also, on a rare occasions, punitive damages awarded as well. But punitive damages are only awarded if the doctor's conduct is found to be willful and reckless, meaning like they intentionally tried to hurt the patient. So if that is ever, if that ever happens, there is no insurance on the planet that will cover a doctor for intentionally trying to hurt a patient. So if a doctor gets found guilty and has punitive damages awarded, they have to pay that themselves. So that is not covered by their malpractice insurance. Otherwise, everything else is. Your malpractice insurance is gonna pay the attorney fees. So they're gonna pay for all the, uh, the, you know, the hourly wages to take the, have the attorney represent you in court. It's gonna pay for all your court fees, all the filing fees. 
everything else is covered by your insurance policy. That's what you pay your premium for. Interesting. So many things we could talk about for the sake of time. I think we'll, we'll, we'll keep moving. In terms of when we actually get claims, like how often is it that there's actually a claim on malpractice? Yeah, it really depends on a couple of main factors. And it really has to do with primarily the doctor's specialty and where they're working. Those are the two main drivers of frequency and severity of malpractice suits. So if you are, let's say one of the lower risk specialists, let's say you're like an allergist or a dermatologist, or even a primary care provider, the statistics show that by the time that provider reaches, you know, age 45 or 50, 30% of those guys will have experienced at least one lawsuit. By the time they reach retirement age, that number probably doubles. So it goes up to maybe 60 to 70%. So the chances of them getting sued is fairly high sometime in their career. Now, if it's a higher risk specialist, so let's say it's an OBGYN or a neurosurgeon or somebody somebody like that, you know, the chances of them getting sued is much higher. So 88% of those doctors will be sued at least once by the time they reach age 45 or 50. And 99% of them will be sued at least once by the time they reach retirement age. You know, chances of getting sued is unfortunately fairly high, but I always tell doctors, don't let that worry you because it is, it's just the nature of healthcare today. Like it is very, very common for a doctor to get swept up into a lawsuit with a patient that they didn't even see. Oftentimes we'll see issues where, and I always give the analogy of if you sneezed in the hallway outside of a patient's room, you might get named in the lawsuit. You know, what happens is plaintiff attorneys are going to name every single person whose name shows up on the medical chart, even if you had nothing to do with the incident at hand. But once they start doing discovery and they start pulling out the facts of the case, chances are you'll get dropped. So don't worry if you get sued, if it's not anything that's of significance, most of the time it goes away. But I mentioned that because, you know, you'll still have the anxiety of being involved in the claim. So I just want to make sure doctors are prepared that chances are it's going to happen to you at least once in your career. Just, you know, be prepared for that. Have the right insurance that'll cover you appropriately, but just understand that that's kind of the nature of healthcare. And do you find, like, I think of like property and casualty insurance, right? Which I think this is, can be similar to in that your premiums, maybe for a group, or would have you depend on how many claims are being made, right? Mm-hmm. So um, if you are deemed more risky, then maybe you can't even get covered. Have you, can you talk about that a little bit? In terms yeah, for of- sure. And that's exactly right. So, you know, you're, you're going to pay your malpractice premium and that's a factor of your specialty, where you work, what kind of insurance you buy, how much how much limits you have. So all of those are factors that that will affect your rate. But beyond that, then there are, you know, little levers that'll make your rate go up and down. So, you know, if you're working part-time, you'll get a discount for working part-time. If you've been in practice for 10 years or more, and you've never had a claim against you, you're going to get a discount like that safe driver discount. You know, it's a discount for not having any losses. If you do end up having a claim payout, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get your insurance non-renewed. It just means that 
you're not going to get as much of a discount as you may have had before. So it might feel like a rate increase, but in reality, it's just that you're not, you know, eligible for the credit that you once had. So um, that is fairly common in, in how those um, rates are dictated and, and the different credit structures that we see in the market. No, that's, that's all good, Jennifer. And, and we're running short on time at this point. I'm sure there's so much we could cover. Do you have any words of wisdom as we close out the conversation today and, and talking to us that are learning about this subject? Yeah. You know, I'll just leave you with two quick things as it relates to how to avoid a malpractice lawsuit. And we could probably have a whole nother episode on this topic in more detail, but let me just give you the two, I think, biggest factors um, that can help prevent a suit to begin with. And the first one is bedside manner. So one of the most important things that you can do as a physician or a surgeon is to develop a strong relationship with your patient, showing that you care, showing that you aren't hurrying through the, um, the appointment. You know, we have, we've seen data that shows that doctors who come into the room and sit down with their patient, um, are seen as more empathetic and are less likely to be sued because it looks like they're slowing down, taking their time, you know, they're not the standing hovering over the bed. It looks like they're not in a rush and they're spending the quality time that they need to understand the issue and to make sure the patient is taken care of. You know, don't look at your phone, don't look at your watch or focus on the screen, make eye contact, use their name, be empathetic. Think of them like your niece or nephew or somebody that you really care about and you want to make sure they understand the treatment plan that you have recommended for them. And then the second thing I would just say is document, document, document. You know, electronic health records are a blessing and a curse. Sometimes the templates um, that you get with the with an EHR or an EMR system sometimes are detrimental because it doesn't, it lets you click a bunch, a bunch of boxes, but it doesn't really give you an opportunity to elaborate on what your thought process was. But it's incredibly important that you are documenting and clearly saying, this is what I recommended. And this is why I chose this course of treatment as opposed to option B, because you're going to see thousands and thousands of patients. And by the time a claim actually develops, you're probably not going to remember that specific interaction. So make sure you're clearly um, articulating what the facts of the issue are, what were the various treatment plan options were that you considered, and why did you pick the one that you picked? because that will come in handy down the road when you need to go back and reference that information. It'll be really important that those uh, notes are thorough uh, and timely in the entry um, so that you can reference them to your benefit later on. I love it. No, all, all good hints, Jennifer, and so much we could, I'm sure, dig into with this and really appreciate your time. If people want to find you in Aegis online, Aegis spelled with an A, where can they find you? Yeah. Aegismalpractice.com, uh, which is A-E-G-I-S malpractice.com is our website. Um, you can actually click the link in the top right-hand corner to schedule a 10-minute call with me if you have any questions, if you want to get some quotes, uh, or if you just have some hypothetical situations you want to talk through as it relates to your malpractice insurance. I love having those conversations. So uh, the website is the right place to go for that. It's also got our phone number, email, um, and also has our blog and our podcast. We have a weekly podcast called Malpractice Insights, which is just 10 minute episodes, really short, sweet, um, but it talks about all different topics related to malpractice insurance with the intent of really giving doctors the information that they need to make the choice that's right for them. Love it. Well, thank you, Jennifer. Appreciate you coming on. 
And uh, anything else we should wrap up the episode with? I think that's it. I really appreciate your time. And uh, please let us know if we can be of service to you. Thank you, Jennifer. For the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, this is Dave Deniston. Remember, my friends, remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Thank you, my friends, so much for listening to the last podcast. I am pleased to announce that I am now a completely independent financial advisor, where to the point now I can really integrate my financial planning practice with this podcast. If you might be looking for help, if you have found any of our information here interesting or relevant and you're looking for a second opinion, I'm making myself available for 30-minute strategy sessions. And if you want to arrange a time to meet with me to discuss your situation and see if we might be a good fit for one another, I'd like you to call our office and speak with Kyla. Our phone number is 612-284-2409. Again, that's 612-284-2409. And I look forward to helping you with your financial situation. And now for some lovely legal disclosures required by our lawyer friends. Investment advice is only offered in jurisdictions where Centurion Financial Strategies, LLC, Centurion is appropriately registered or exempt from registration. Our Form ADV Part 2 brochure can be obtained free of charge at advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching for our firm name or its unique CRD number, which is 316-454. This podcast is not a solicitation to provide advisory services in any jurisdiction in which we are not appropriately registered or excluded. The information, statements, and opinions contained in this podcast have been obtained from or are based on information obtained from sources which we believe to be reliable, but we do not warrant or guarantee the timeliness or accuracy of such information. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized investment, tax, or legal advice. Opinions expressed by any guest are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the firm's views. You should carefully consider your own financial circumstances and needs prior to making any investment in securities or purchasing any insurance products. As always, past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing in securities or really anything else involves the risk of loss. If by some chance in this particular podcast I mentioned insurance products, insurance products are backed by the financial strength and claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. They may be subject to restrictions, limitations, and early withdrawal fees, which vary by issue. You should always consider the charges, risks, expenses, and investment objective of any insurance products before entering a contract. And that, my friends, wraps it up. Wish you all the best. Feel free to contact us with any info at www.daviddeniston.com. Thank you so much and have a good one. Bye-bye.